Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Lester P. Jenkins. On this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Bob Nastanovich, a resident of Des Moines, Iowa. Bob is an American musician and member of the indie rock band Pavement, as well as a former member of Silver Jews. In addition to his career in music, Bob is a thoroughbred enthusiast and works at Prey Meadows Racetrack in Altoona, Iowa. We talk about Bob's journey from growing up in Richmond, Virginia, driving buses in New York City, to touring with indie rock bands, to his work in horse racing and running a record label. Bob also co-hosts the podcast Three Song Pod with Mike Hogan. Bob shares how his interests in both music and horse racing were cultivated throughout his formative years in Richmond. I appreciated Bob sharing some fantastic stories and perspectives about his careers in music and horse racing, as well as his openness to my questions and playing along with me as we nerded out about Vic Chestnut. The title of this episode, Lester P. Jenkins, is in honor of Bob's time as a bus driver in New York City. Pavement will be touring Europe in 2022. As for Bob and I, teaming up to write the next great arena sports anthem, well, we'll have to wait and see. It was an honor having Bob on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Bob, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, kind thanks for the invitation. Um, my name is Bob Nasanovich. I live here in Des Moines, about a mile from downtown Des Moines. I've lived here for, I've lived in Iowa for nearly 15 years. Um, I moved here from Nashville. I mainly grew up in Richmond. Um, what brought me to Iowa it was as I got a job working for a company called Equibase at Prairie Meadows, and I since extended my roles there in order to sort of carve out a living um, seasonally on the horse racing side at Prairie Meadows. Um, so I work, you know, for Prairie Meadows as their program coordinator, and I also work for a for a data collection company called Thoroughgraph. So it's basically a bunch of horse racing jobs, and then. Um, I also run a small record label out of the house here called Brokers Tip Records. Um, we put out a few local bands and um, we put out mainly seven inch vinyl records two or three times a year. It's a, it's been a very small nonprofit label that I run out of the household. Um, I guess I'm best known in life for being a member of the rock band Pavement, um, which would have in the large seen me leave Iowa for most of 2010 when we did a reunion tour. And then I also was in Silver Jews and have played in a few, few other bands along the way. Um, I, I do a podcast myself, a music podcast about two or three times a month called the um, three songs pod, uh, which involves myself and my, my dear friend, Mike Hogan, um, spending about an hour, each playing three songs by three different bands every week and discussing them. 
um, again, um, nonprofit. <laughs> There's not a lot of profits going on. I also own and breed racehorses. Um, currently, I guess all over the world, um, mostly slow ones, which aren't worth bragging about, uh, Matt. Yeah. So yeah, everything's, uh, everything's good. You know, I like Des Moines. I, cool. I love it. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, uh, just for context, kind of, you know, when I was, when I was doing my undergrad, that was 80, 89 to 93, uh, and worked at the college radio station. So first came across your work right through kind of alternative music. Yeah. That uh, was pavement prime time. Yeah. Um, I'm a few years older than you. I was 85 to 89 myself and I did college radio as well. And so, uh, where did you go to school? University of Virginia. Okay. All right. Charlottesville. Yeah. I grew up in Richmond. Um, I was born in Rochester, New York, and my family moved to Richmond when I was about five. And, um, and then we were in Richmond for a long time. My, my mother and sister are still there and both my sister and myself went to university of Virginia. Right on. So you two, the two big interests, seem to be right you have you have horses and and music from your your journey and your craft kind of which came first was it your interest in music interest in horses um you know oh, that's a, that's an interesting question because really sort of around the same time um my interest in music started probably around the same time as you sort of as a teenager you know like junior high um, you know, Richmond was actually a really cool town to be from. We had a couple of good record stores, specifically a store called Plan 9, and they got really, really great stuff. And then the University of Richmond had good college radio. Um, but Richmond, where it's located on Interstate 95, um, sort of, you know, at the middle point between Miami and the Northeast, um, a lot of bands stopped there. Um, you know, after they play DC and before they play like Chapel Hill, it's just, um, it was always a very busy place and still is because um, BCU has a big art school and Richmond's always had a big local music scene. Um, so I started getting really into buying records and going to see gigs as a teenager, um, which was sort of a great benefit. Um, interestingly, when I first moved to Virginia, when I was in, in first grade, the principal of our elementary school was a cousin of the owner of Secretariat, who is Virginia bred. I uh, was obviously one of the greatest American racehorses of all time. So um, horse racing, even though paramutual wagering wasn't legal in Virginia, became a passion of mine. And then as I went through my teens and then made it into college, I fancied myself um, fairly good at math. And I sort of became, for lack of a better way of putting it, a gambling addict. Um, and then if you realize you have <clears throat> um, an addressable issue like that as a young man, then you sort of pursue your passion in an effort to learn as much as you can so you don't lose too much along the way. So um, horse racing, gambling on horse racing has often been referred to as um, the most difficult in the game 
uh, the most difficult game in the world to win. Um, and I can't argue with that. Um, it's incredibly difficult. Um, once you're in it for a long time, I was able to save a fair amount of money from pavement and other jobs and start owning horses. And then I sort of, um, the ultimate stroke of idiocy as a horse owner and that I started um, breeding my own, which um, is incredibly expensive. And with my budget, I was sort of pitted against um, some of the wealthiest people in the world um, with, for a long time, I, I lived in Louisville and I kind of like to cons consider myself the, the poorest owner breeder in Kentucky, which I may very well have been. So um, yeah, it was pretty much simultaneous, but the music thing I've been literally three to 5,000 times more successful at. Um, it's sort of interesting that a mile from where I'm sitting right now um, lives a good friend of mine named Maggie Moss, who's one of the most successful, if not the most successful individual horse owner in America in the last 25 plus years. And we both st started owning horses in the mid to late nineties. And the main difference is, is that, is that she's won about 3,400 races and I've won about 40. Um, so there you go. She's um, wiser and, and, and more shrewd and just better at it than I am. Um, music is um, I've been, very fortunate. Yeah, thanks yeah, for for context too. I I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, yeah, and so right, home of Cheap Trick. Um, mm. And yeah, a lot of a lot of my interest in music was probably just going through my dad's old vinyl collection when I when I was growing up because he had a he had a pretty eclectic mix of, of music. Cool. And yeah, I I remember the glory days too of of vinyl. I mean, they've made a resurgence, oh, yeah. but right, being able to sit while looking at good cover art or reading a lot about about an artist or trying to figure out who played on what record and and starting to piece things together, yeah, like pre pre internet, right? That that was there. Was, the hunt was like in person. You had to go like document and find these things out, and that's where I used to nerd out on on music. But I did, and then I did my undergrad at uh, University of Iowa. Uh, but uh, by chance, when you were when you were touring, did you ever play Gabe's? Or play Iowa City back in the day? Yeah, we played um we played Gabe's. I think it was Gabe's. We definitely played both Iowa City and Ames. Yeah. We played Ames in ninety-four, and I think we played Iowa City in ninety-two. Um, oh. but then you know, I went to Gabe's over twenty years later during the Mission Creek Festival, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um I uh, for a few years there, I'd find myself going to Iowa City two or three times that week, and and I didn't recognize Gabe's in any way, shape, or form. And then recently, um, our guitar player in Pavement sort of reassembled our entire gig history, and I'm sort of meant to look up exactly where we played in Iowa City. I remember it being a very memorable gig. It was not poorly attended. Um, I, the most interesting thing that occurred to us that night is that there was a bar all the way in the back of the venue. 
and the bartender, our drummer, Gary Young, um, became fast friends with, which was not unusual for Gary um, with bartenders. And um, as, it, as it turned out, this woman whose name was Gina um, had a particularly amazing story in which that previous year she'd gotten in an unfortunate accident where she'd been water skiing and somehow got tangled underneath the boat and and basically got pretty severely mangled by the boat propeller and she survived but she had i can't remember the exact number of course but her entire body was basically stitched back together sort of in those old-fashioned stitch marks and she was really really cool um and um her story was so amazing that we named our van at the time Gina after her. Um, that's my clearest memory of Iowa City um, back then in the day. Um, yeah. The gig, the gig, I think, hopefully was salvageable. <laughs> yeah, and uh, also when, when you were talking, kind of the influence of music. Uh, I uh, after college, I ended up in Minneapolis, and I think I was there mostly because kind of growing up on the. Uh, Minneapolis post-punk scene, just you know, yes, who's could do replacements. And <laughs> loaded, so, loaded, loaded, babes in Toyland. Yeah. Um, are sort of mostly still there. There's so much. Soul Asylum, were they Minneapolis? They were. Yep. They really rocked in the early days for sure. Um, now Minneapolis is happening. Um, for me, like it was mostly my father, um, I actually didn't find out until after he um, passed away that he had quite a few records himself. Um, unlike your dad, he kept most of them um, hidden. Um, but I found some, some pretty cool records in his office under his bed. When I was cleaning up his office. Um, but I mostly depended on having a few friends in Richmond and we'd go to the record store all the time and we would save our money from our crappy um, teenage jobs and buy records. And then um, my friend, Nordy Hoard, my dear late friend, Nordy Hoard, we had, we're actually the only high school kids that had a radio station at University of Richmond, um, which we thought um, would sort of expand our horizons in, in the coolness department. Um, it, it didn't really, but at least in our own minds, it did. Um, so, yeah, no, it was, I mean, I still have plenty of the records here that I bought during those those years, you know, some of my favorites of all time. I was sort of instantly into um, Minuteman and Gang of Four and Echo and the Bunny Man and early SST stuff. And like you, I like the replacements. And in that part of the country, REM used to come through Richmond, um, in the early days, the Murmur Reckoning era. And yeah. um, they were marvelous. They probably had a bigger impact on us than, than anybody else. Yeah, I remember, I feel like uh, REM being one of my first loves that I felt like was on my own that wasn't because of my dad's record collection. And yeah. uh, I heard, and I know on your three songs pod, which I, it's, I, I, love, I love the show. I know one of your older episodes too, I... I just it really caught my attention that uh you know from an REM song you you highlighted kind of the uh the fables uh era right mm. but uh, good good advice is being uh your selection 
and I'm not questioning the selection at all. I just, it, such a good song, but it's like, they were so talented, you know, the, the amount of songs to get there, right? If you were to list those, doesn't show up on many lists, but I thought it was a beautiful choice. And the way you talked about REM just brought back really fond memories of me and my friends as we would, uh, you know, dig out the, the next REM record. Oh, yeah, same. Like, um, I remember um, being like 16, and again, I'm a few years older than you. And um, we were at Virginia Beach, a bunch of kids at Virginia Beach, like, you know, trying to be more adult than they actually were. Um, and people, you know, there's like three or four high schools from Richmond were all sort of buddies. And like, the word got out that somebody had an advanced copy of the album Reckoning, and it just like, um, which was true when we went over to this party house and there was like a hundred people listening to reckoning and, um, you know, I've kind of, in, I've kind of heard people tell interesting stories, um, pavement fans about similar things happening with getting advanced copies of slanted enchanted or crooked rain, crooked rain or something like that. And, and I was like, yeah, we were like that with, reckoning and like <laughs> yeah. so it's just you know nothing's more intense and those teenage years when you really love a band and you're sort of hanging on their next move um it's it's sort of really really important um but yeah no rem just in a nutshell made us feel cool and they also you know since richmond was you know part of their tour path they would always um bring really cool bands with them um i think i already mentioned minutemen and gang of four i don't think i would have been introduced to either band without without rem perhaps um a lot of english bands just a lot of weird things that they were into and then of course for some reason the scene in athens has been so amazingly productive over the years in athens georgia where rem's from you know producing not only Pylon, but and Love Tractor, but just, you know, dozens of really interesting acts, which is pretty amazing for a kind of a small college town. Um, I don't know what's in the water there, but I wish it was in the water right. here in Des Moines. Um, there's other things in the water that I'm afraid yeah. are agricultural runoff from the northern part of the state. Yeah, it, it, right through through REM too. It was I think that was how I was introduced to Vic Chestnut, right? And uh, uh, because I, my understanding was that Michael Stipe had produced Little, kind of yeah. worked with Vic to get him in his studio, and then I don't know, maybe three four times I was able to see him, but opening for Bob Mould when uh, kind of Bob was in between Husker uh, Du and Sugar, and then post Sugar a little bit, but. I think I saw, I, I did at Gabe's actually, I know that's one spot. First Avenue was another where I saw uh, Vic open up for. He's sorely missed. Yeah. Sorely overlooked as well. You don't hear as many people talk about Vic Chestnut. I think that it's important, Matt, that we keep his spirit alive. And Matt, that's actually really appreciated because I'm quite sure we haven't featured him on the Three Songs pod. Thanks for giving me an idea. Yeah, and I think, you know... It, I'll dedicate it, it to you, mate. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, for me, to, to just the, the albums, right? Little and then also the the Salesman and Bernadette are just like, those, those are records that fall in category for me that I just really like to 
sit and listen to like just you know the whole album when you and i don't know you you've you've been you're a much different part of the music scene than me but for me it's also as an adult finding it harder to have that time that we did as teenagers to listen to an entire album and and truly listen to it and soak it in but his albums i love to just soak in yeah no amazing um see i never got to see him live i heard some interesting urban legends about him one involving people in athens he might be able to verify this is truth like um him wanting to be pushed down a steep hill in his wheelchair and kind of wrecking and something that's true right i i don't i've heard a similar story but i can't verify well we can't ask Vic, but i should be able to ask um you know i became really good friends with lance bangs when he was a teenager in athens the filmmaker yeah um, we've done a lot of great rock um rockumentaries as they're called um and um he became friends with michael stipe when he was around the same age like you know 14 15 16 years old and he seemingly would be the source on all things athens um despite the fact he lives in portland so i'll find out but i just vaguely remember this insane story circulating about him and you know what it's kind of interesting like um Oftentimes you don't see our artists that you're really interested in. And then other times you see um, bands several times that you'd be happy not to see. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. Dick Chestnut, what a marvel. So I want to ask you a little bit more too about, uh, and I, I do want to come back to kind of in bands you've been making the flip from open to headliner like what that feels like with an audience. But before you were getting to the bands, and this is, uh, I might be I might be off, but as I was getting ready for, for a conversation, I didn't know this, uh, see if Wikipedia is true, but uh, you were influenced by working at the Whitney and the conceptual art that was there. Is that true? Um, that's David Berman and Steve okay. Malkins. Those okay. guys um, worked at the Whitney Art Museum, as did Steve West, the, the drummer and pavement um today who took over the the reins i guess yeah. say that when you're a drummer took over the sticks <laughs> the beats uh sat on the throne they, they all three of them they became they well david and steven went to school together at virginia with myself steven was a steve west was a sculptor at vcu and he was in a um, pretty interesting band called contu cook line that tried to make a go of it in New York City and, and didn't really get anywhere. And somehow the three of them, I think David might have gotten the job first, um, which in his case, it would have been, I think, the last, quote, real job he had in his life. Um, so it was kind of interesting because I was <clears throat> spending, I was living with one or both of David and Stephen and hang out with Steve West all the time. And they were, they were, security guards in an art museum a very stylish art museum the whitney art museum right. with all kinds of interesting people and um you know a lot of famous artists the openings were particularly exciting for them because you know all kinds of you know famous under underground art people and hipsters in new york city during a time when it was sort of a really still kind of a wide open 
and dangerous um, place to live um, pre-Giuliani. Um, it's when David Dinkins was the mayor of, of New York and his most significant uh, accomplishment as mayor other than keeping the streets completely maniacal, which was fantastic, and allowing the artist community to sort of thrive was he was really into the tennis. Um, and so his big accomplishment was getting the planes to stop flying the, over the US Open to interrupt the tennis players. So we all sort of adored Dinkins because he let all hell, all hell break loose. Um, Except but I was for the US I, Open. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, I drove a bus. I drove a okay. bus and what those, what those guys were doing that and complaining about it and acting like it was like, and apparently it's not easy to stand for several hours um, and look at pieces of art and, you know, un, unusually attractive hip art girls. Um, it's very, very stressful compared to driving a bus in New York City. So they would moan about their job all the time. And I worked about 55 to 70 hours a week as a, as a bus driver in Manhattan during those same years. And then, then I had so many accidents that I became a terminal manager. <laughs> okay. So, uh, sticking with uh, I ran the over a police car once. Yeah, you, you, sorry, you hit a police car? I ran over a parked police car right by Grand Central Station. It was not, let's just say it was a bad moment in rock and roll history, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got away with it. I figured out and as time has gone on that it's the only way that you can destroy a police car of any in any way, shape, or form and completely get away with it. And that's to be a sort of, you know, a fellow city employee. Um, keep in mind I'd been at CBGB's at 3:30 in the morning, and this particular it was my first route across 42nd Street that day, and it was at about 6.05 in the morning. So I may not been um, legally able to drive. <coughs> but that's okay, because yeah. that's now <clears throat> some 33 years behind me. Right, right. 30 years. But I do remember the guy whose car is an officer named Lester P. Jenkins. I'll never forget his name. He was an unusually lenient police police officer. He um, he didn't know what to write me up for. Um, he handed me the ticket and he said, "Well, I have to write you up for something." And I looked at the ticket with you know all the different violations and the little boxes, and I said, "Well, I think an improper turn fits the bill." Um, and so he, he, I got written up for an improper turn. Then if you're a if you're an MTA or New York City bus driver, then you have to go to court. And then I went to court six weeks later thinking that I was going to get in far more trouble than I'd gotten into. And they do it alphabetically. And my, my name, my last name starts with the letter N. And I got called up first and um, he'd gotten dismissed from the force. And it was sort of a, a strange feeling because I, I realized that, that it may very well have been his incredibly lenient handling of my case. But then I thought about it for a while and, and I spent about 10 minutes with him that day. And I thought, you know, he was, he was so cool. Um, and he was young that he probably 
um, wasn't cut out to be a New York City police officer. So not only did I run over a police car, but I run, ran over a police officer, probably, probably the coolest cop in New York City history. So thank you, Lester. I think about you often, especially around this time of year, because when it, when it happened. Thank you. Uh, I do like the uh, that it the it was presented to you almost as a menu. So you just had you know needed. I mean, what the, can you imagine how many times you've been in? Like, I mean, I, I mean, I've been pulled <laughs> over a few dozen times by police officers, and I would have liked to have been handed the ticket many times. You know, <laughs> um, usually they sort of dictate that situation. Right. Um, it was bizarre. I mean, this like I thought I was just like in the biggest trouble of my life. Like it's. Um, again, like I said, he was parked, so I had a few minutes to sort of think about it. And there was a few homeless people that lived under the bridge there. Um, dire again, directly, directly across from, from Grand Central. And like after a few minutes, they had seen what happened. These homeless guys came over to my window and said, they basically said, make a run for it, you know. And so I actually entertained that notion for about a minute and a half. Like, should I just like, you know, get, get out of here? And um I decided to stay and, you know, this Lester uh, knocked on the door and he immediately, came, he wasn't upset. Um, he was in, just incredibly, incredibly cool, cool about it. It was just, it was just bizarre. I mean, it's been all downhill with um, my interactions with police officers before and since. Right. Well, when Lester's setting that standard on what you can get away with, right. And that's and a very their, their high calm demeanor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to get myself in trouble yeah. with any police officers. So I'll sort of leave it at that. So uh, just connecting back to, to my, my dad was a firefighter. Uh, oh, wow. And one of his early, you kind of early in your career, you start off as a driver. And uh, one of the first things that happened to him was a, they were in route to a, uh, a fire and a, uh, uh, a garbage truck cut out in front of them and it's in rockford yeah yeah and then they parked the the garbage truck on somebody's front yard it i mean that was the amount of four it went off the street so when you think about the thousands of gallons of water that a fire truck is has with that that speed and mass hit, hitting a garbage truck i imagine oh, wow. it was pretty intense but my, yeah my dad said that uh he thought he was done uh, as a like done with life or done being a just as a as a firefighter right okay so it wasn't life-threatening no no okay uh, oh bless his heart so he was so, a fire, firefighter for like decades yeah for uh, 30 years he was going to be a high school science teacher okay. uh but uh the way that education programs run is you do your student teaching uh at the at the very end of your your school program and he realized once he started doing student teaching that, that it wasn't for him. Uh, he was a bit of an introvert, so I think maybe just talking to students all day. But what I always find funny is he found it psychologically safer to run into burning buildings than try to teach science to high school kids. Well, yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah, when you when you're under that kind of pressure that I can imagine a firefighter is under, you know, you don't really have that much time to ponder. Yeah. You have to kind of act. Um, my parents were both school teachers, uh, my mother for a longer period yeah. of time. Um, and they both, they both encouraged me to do so. And I just, um, I just couldn't, I 
it's such a noble profession um, that I could never see myself doing it. And for some reason, I ended up majoring in American government, um, which I sort of never had any interest in. It was a very odd choice. So that's how you end up being a bus driver when you graduate from a good public university. <laughs> what, what, was your, what was your first job after uh, University of Iowa? So I went to I went to grad school right, uh, right okay, away. See, I, didn't, I, I didn't do that. No. no, but after so but right after that, that's when I moved up to Minneapolis and I worked for a market research firm and it started as um, just doing grunt work because I, I could do some qualitative and quantitative research. It started as grunt work, moved my way up a little bit, but uh, it was, it was nothing glamorous. Uh, it's a real <laughs> job. Though. It's like a real job, you know, kind of a proper job. Like, I don't think I've ever had, I've never had like a proper adult job. Um, you know, obviously the bus driving thing, then just, just like I was saying, just the incredible fortune of being able to put down what I was doing for the rest of the nineties and then be in pavement. And then the money saved from pavement, I sort of tried to live off of that for a couple of years and blew it faster than my bandmates did because of horse racing. I lived across the street from Churchill Downs. And then I became a jockey agent for a few years, which was incredibly difficult um, and stressful. And then I started working these, jobs here at Prairie Meadows. So I guess sort of when you think, when I think back at my 30 plus years now as, as like, you know, my work career, I somehow put together a living, but in a very unorthodox fashion. Um, so many of my friends, same age group are like sort of incredibly successful and, and, um, you know, success is measured in different ways, often not by wealth, my friend. So um, right. that's right. at least that, that's what the poor people say. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not saying like I'm poor, but like, you know, it's, it yeah. is, I, I do think there is a, this overemphasis in, in this ultra capitalist society to measure everything by how much money people have. And um, to me, wealth is not defined by money. And that's, you know, could easily be a way that you know, I, I feel better about my misguided investments. Oh. I'm like, I'm like the only person, you know, like, for example, like I bought two houses in my life. The first one I bought for $42,000. You hear these, these stories all the time. Oh, I bought this house for like $80,000. And, you know, 19 years later, I sold it for 280, you know, um, I bought my, my first house when I was in my mid twenties in Louisville and sold it 22 years later for the exact same price I bought it for 42,000. And then I bought this one in 2011. Um, and see it, I won't sell it now when the real estate market's hot, I'll end up selling it when like things are back on a downturn to just to, you know, completely ensure failure. <laughs> <laughs> jumping back, jumping back to some of the band stuff. I do want to dig into the the horses a little bit more too. But I I am yeah. curious. One is as you know, growing up as a fan of music, being inspired by shows that you've gone to. I'm just kind of curious what it felt like on the other side of you know being on stage performing, 
and like kind of curious too on the the opener versus headliner because crowd crowds sometimes aren't that that kind of openers right and uh yet i've discovered a lot of bands that i've loved as because they were an opening act but i'm kind of curious from from the stage side of things how did it did it feel any different or were you just going to go play the same show regardless well first of all and you very easily could have been the same way um from about age 16 forwards you know considering the part of the country you're from um you also could have been a total road tripper to go see bands and um so by the time like me and my friends got were permitted to drive and leave town and then of course we went to college and i from the sounds of things unlike you was was a very irresponsible college student I was very lucky to graduate um i basically spent all those college radio years in which i was supposed to be a student um i worked a lot because i felt guilty about my lack of interest in academics and um <clears throat> but i was basically constantly taking road trips to see bands i never ever intended to ever be in a band at any point um even leading up to the first handful of pavement shows which would have occurred in august of 1990 um in late july 1990 i had a suburban which was going to act as pavement's tour vehicle and i i volunteered to steven who's one of my best friends that i'll be the tour manager and i'll drive you guys everywhere and it was during that same conversation where he said well I need, I need to do something else. And, and I, he said, he's like, I definitely want you to do that, but I needed to buy some percussion stuff, a couple of drums or something like that, because you haven't met Gary yet. We were headed up to Mamaroneck, New York to practice. And um, Gary is an incredible drummer, um, very much as a drummer and just as a person from sort of the Keith Moon um, school of drumming, just completely wild and chaotic individual. And um, Stephen had never played live with him and did, actually didn't even know him particularly well. I mean, they, they, they met him through the Yellow Pages in Stockton. Um, and <clears throat> so he basically needed me to come along to make sure that time was being kept and I had never my mother was like, are you, my, I was a tennis player when I was a teenager and um, my parents couldn't believe that I was traveling around the country going up on stage playing shows. And of course, you know, during those first two years, 90, 91, and then even really throughout the very busy year of 92, which was slanted and enchanted, um, the idea of me being on stage was just sort of absurd to me. And there were several songs in which I just didn't do anything. Um, I subsequently, especially after Gary quit the band, expanded my role and started doing other things. And then, <clears throat> and like, I guess kind of like, I'm in my own eyes, which, you know, sort of proved my worth um, of being in the band, but, I never, I was just a gig goer and a record collector like you were. I never, the idea of, of me being on stage would have been the same way as, and I don't know, even know your history in terms of playing in bands or playing music or anything like that, but I never even 
I had tons of friends who were in bands. <clears throat> that was like their thing. I never played. <clears throat> I never thought about playing. I never thought about instruments. Um, yeah, I went to a tiny high school. There was a couple of bands in the high school. I never wanted to be in. And I was more, I was more interested in being a roadie and just like going to see bands. I mean, and, and um, so the fact that I ended up in a band was kind of absurd. And then pavement, because of the way things work, <clears throat> worked back then, which of course in your position, your age group, you're very familiar with, <clears throat> with fanzine culture and record stores and um, you know the Ajax catalog and various other sources in which to buy records outside of the record store. And it was pretty limited. Um, you know, generally you had to either mail order your music from record labels or um, other collectors, or you had to go to record stores. Um, but um, the opinions of a few dozen fanzines and rock critics had a huge influence on the success of bands sort of in this I guess what you'd call kind of like a pre-Nirvana culture. Um, and pavement for some reason was very well treated by rock critics. We came from left field. Um, the music was pretty noisy. The packaging was, there was a, an air of mystery around what it was, the first several singles and EPs. Um, and so somehow we were able to build this kind of intrigue in the band. And then when we started playing shows, we really hadn't practiced enough and we really did not, did not know how to play our songs, which I thought would hurt us, but it, if anything, it kind of helped us in that people who would come to see us play, I guess, I guess sort of considered us likable and had a certain amount of sympathy for us. Um, so it was all, it was all very, very strange time, but one great thing about pavement from the very start in the very first gig we ever played, which was New Brunswick, New Jersey in the summer of 1990, um, there were people there, um, just about everywhere we went, maybe out of intrigue. Um, there are some people that were just like, thought we sucked. So they were there to tell us that we sucked. Um, there are some people that kind of adored us. And then when we started going to the UK and Europe, which happened right off the bat in 92, pavement was really like embraced, particularly in the UK and in Germany and Holland and Northern Europe. And um, we kind of really found a larger audience um, there. Um, so it was strange. I mean, like you see, you so many bands have had to, you know, struggle and build their audience and stuff like that. Pavement, like, was just crazy fortunate. Like we just um, were always very well treated by, you know, hip rock critics of yore and um and we always had sort of a, a a following that was sort of intrigued and very loyal and then as as the years went by kind of gradually built that following at a pace that we were always really comfortable with um i don't think 
I mean, I can only speak for myself and that I've never felt the least bit famous. I mean, um, certainly transitioning into careers in horse racing, which pavement and the genre of indie rock or whatever you want to call it could not be less significant in any other culture than horse racing. I mean, less than 1% of horse racing has ever even heard of pavement. People can't believe, and people I've worked with for years can't believe I was ever in a band and they have to like, I've been forced to like, whether I wanted to or not, Google it to show them I was in a band. Um, so many people who play like really, really wretched, um, rock covers and just um gut-wrenching poor country covers have asked me to jam with them from the horse racing world and i have to politely decline because there's no way i could do it um the only way i could the only way that i i could i mean i've i've been in other musical things and people ask me to sort of do things once or twice a year sort of add like a track um, to their records for, for some reason. Um, it's just sort of strange is that the way I've always looked at it is that I, the only way I can play music is to play silver juice or pavement songs. You know, like I'm, I don't, like yeah. I've never written a song. I mean, I've tried to, I guess I've tried to write songs. I tried, you know, we ought to get together and do it, Matt. Sometimes I think really the key <laughs> to success in the music industry is to, um, is to write one of these songs that gets played at, at um, sports arenas all around the world, um, whether it be like you know Seven Nation Army by we'll, White Stripes, we'll come up or, with the next the next. See, I tried, I tried, yeah. I tried to about ten years ago. I came up. The only song I've ever written is a song called "Bubba Bubba Bubba Bad," and it was a um, song which was an attempt to um, be played like at basketball arenas. And I had a friend of mine here in, in Des Moines um, record it, and I thought I turned it out. Turned, I thought it turned out great and I got some good feedback for it, but I didn't really know, know where to send it. Um, but you know, there's gotta be more like, even today when you turn on like any sporting event, you'll hear Gary glitter blur song to, yeah. you know, the shark song, um, seven nation army, you know, like football stadiums with 90,000 people, you know, they all know that song and they're, you know, it's basically the only like the same six, eight songs. They need some new tunes, you know, if let's we can do just it. like, let's do one of those. Nobody even has to know who we are. It can be really, really simple and repetitive. And then just like, you know, five years from now, we'll be like, yeah, that's, that's me. And that's me and Matt Arnold, by the way, that's, you know, that's why we, that's why we don't work anymore. It's why it's, it's why, it's why my horses have gotten a lot faster. Oh, uh, you know, just wanted to go back. Uh, Cause kind of the music side, I think similar to you, I, I knew friends that were in bands, right. And was friends with them. And even in college, there was a band out of the quad cities uh, called uh, Tripmaster monkey in the early nineties. And they, they were getting courted by record companies. And so they went to play some showcase shows out in New York. And I oh, still, yeah. I regret this to this day. They're like, Matt, you want to just go with us to basically help drive, help just keep things on track. Uh, and. Who year was this? Uh, Tripmaster Monkey was the band. And they. What year, what, what year did they oh, this, New York about? This is ni 92. Oh uh, yeah, I would have been there. Yeah. And. Yeah. 
I'm like, ah, you know, I, the, the Midwestern work ethic thing, I, I had this, this really shitty job, right? I worked, I worked at the Memorial Union at the university, moving tables yeah. and chairs as they'd set stuff up. It was basically a mix of janitorial work, but it was 40 hours a week as a, as a that, that felt great to, to get some money. And, yeah. and I didn't know if I could take that, that time off. Uh, and but you know, it, I would have been on the guest list at CBGB, so that would have Dude, been that was, like a, that was a dreadful error on your part. You should have gone for it. It's so bad. And then I mean, I, turned, yeah. my, I, I mean, met my wife. The Memorial Union yeah. call you once here and thank you for your the level of dedication. I mean, you know, no, no, they don't even know how many injuries I had from dropping tables or chairs on my foot or on my hands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No workman's comp from them. You know. Anyways, and I, we live I met and learn. my. I met my wife in Minneapolis, but she uh, she did her master's work at NYU. And I remember the first time we traveled to New York together, you know, she just brought me through her old neighborhood because she'd point out, like, here's a record store I think you'd like. Here's something. But it was disappointing, right? Went by CBGB's and it was what I think of Arvados, uh, right? CBGB's had recently closed. Oh, like, oh, when was this? Did you go? When did you go there? That would have been uh, early 2000s, like 2000. Yeah. I don't know. You know, the interest yeah, 2000 or 2001. Yeah. That whole, I mean, you just, you just can't even recognize. I, yeah. I've only been to New York a handful of times during this millennium. Um, and most of those times would have been in 2010 when we played gigs there. It's um, so many institutions closed that, you know, I, I don't even, I, there's no way I could possibly keep up. I kind of try not to keep up. Um, yeah um and you know I, I wasn't there for very long and like you know a lot of you know west and berman malcolm's they stayed a lot longer i i cleared out of there in 93 because i realized like you know this pavement thing like i'm not going to be here very often and i lived in hoboken actually which was marvelous um and i don't want to have to pay these massive rents and never be here you know um right and i certainly don't care about walking up and down washington street um like ira kaplan and bob burt being recognized as local <laughs> rock stars um the idea of it seemed kind of depressing the um, it's funny that you should mention bob Wold, who i've met a few times along the way um, we lived, when we moved, we moved, we lived in Jersey city and, and complete squalor when we first moved there in an area that's actually very, very nice now that was very dangerous when we first moved to New York. And then, um, we lived with this couple that couldn't handle our late night party activities and they were completely reasonable and, and kick, sort of kicking us out. And they gave us 24 hours to find a place. And I found this desperate apartment on willow avenue in hoboken where silver juice started and all the early silver juice stuff was sort of conceived in this basement apartment um and then um as we sort of very gradually um one small step at a time climbed the socioeconomic ladder i was able to move to the main drag in hoboken called um, Washington Ave. And I, so we moved in this apartment, um, myself and David. 
and um, it was like a hundred yards from Maxwell's, a fantastic location. And we started getting all this mail, this Bob Mould mail, and um, Bob Mould's mail kept coming in our in our mailbox. We, we went down to Pure Planners and asked somebody, and we he was the previous tenant, um, which is kind of interesting in a, a city with a population of forty thousand. That actually, you know, one interesting bit of trivia about Hoboken at the time, it was the most crowded city in the world because it's it's a square mile and there's over 40,000 people that live there, which made it more crowded than Shanghai or Beijing. And um, it was just a wonderful place. There's a Maxwell um, House coffee factory there. So it kind of smelled like mediocre coffee. Um, and uh, but we realized that we found love letters that Bob had written for his boyfriend, who was a guy named Paisley Fredericks. We even received his um, bank statements, which um, despite my mischievous ways, I, I did never, I never opened. Um, I never really wanted to find out how much money Bob Mould had in the bank. Um, but we, we told him about it years later when we played with sugar um, who had that drummer, David Barbie, who was yeah. good friends of ours. He's an Athens guy. And, um, we told him all about it. He was rather intrigued by the fact that, um, that one, if I don't know who lives in there now, um, probably somebody way cooler than David and Bob Mould combined lives in there now. Um, or it would be incomprehensible. In, in that would be the truth, but <laughs> Somebody with a yeah, that place, it's amazing. That apartment was eight fifty a month, and now it's probably forty five hundred, if it even exists. It's just so crazy. I mean, like whatever. But you know, the same thing happened in San Francisco, and um, you know, in a sense, L.A. And um, it's sort of interesting. One you know, kind of great thing about living in Des Moines um, is that you can still afford to live here. We just need more cool people, man. We just need more artists, musicians, um, to sort of support a scene here. Um, it's growing. And of course the pandemic has set things back, but, um, I kind of look forward to a day somewhere down the line where, um, Des Moines has kind of a larger, um, and more vibrant arts community than, than it has. Um, but you wanted to ask me about being an, you, um, being an opening band. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was just <clears throat> thinking about too, like the, the, the vibe from the room or were you guys just, you know, just confident, comfortable enough in your own skin that, uh, you didn't really care how the audience was reacting. I just, because when I, you know, when you go into rooms and, and I think shows, this is me sounding like an old man. I think it feels like audiences are less respectful of acts now, uh, just with so much chattering going on. But uh, just still thinking that I sometimes I thought it was really tough for opening acts where sometimes uh, when they say this is our last song, that seemed to get the most applause. And then you know, people are going nuts <laughs> for, for the opening or for the headliner. Just didn't know what that felt like from the stage if it was no um, one one interesting technique of of the air in which i grew up in the early mid 80s and through the 90s which would have been when i was heavily attending 
concerts in all sizes of venues all around the world um, is that the sound men would give the headlining act a far fair shake in the house and oftentimes the support bands or the opening bands would be nowhere near as loud um, which pavement recognized at an unusually um, early phase um, and that would have been the most extensive um, I think it's I think it was kind of a fairly consistent policy almost with both clubs and with touring bands um i was taken aback as a fan of all three bands when i saw a show in new york that i took a road trip from charlottesville the mountains of virginia new york city to see a, a sonic youth d kreutzen mud honey show and um <clears throat> And I'm a huge fan of all three bands. And Mudhoney and Decroyson were half the volume of Sonic Youth. And I was like, what? Yeah, maybe it's just, it's this club's policy. Well, then subsequently, when we started touring with Sonic Youth, they had a Dutch tour manager whose name was Peter Vanderveld. And our sound menu all the way through pavement. And when we <clears throat> when we tour next year, we'll have the same sound menu. It's basically the sixth member of pavement it's a dutch gentleman named remco yeah. shout he's been our front of house sound man for 99 percent of the shows we've ever done okay and he's good uh, i mean believe me he's good because he's yeah. made us sound good and that's very <laughs> difficult and he um would argue with his fellow dutchman about getting a fair shake in the house and um would cheat and it, we would then it got to the point where they're their sound staff would sort of like be in the booth with decibel meters making sure that um that we weren't too loud which <clears throat> remco would just be to, would disrespect the rules um so pavement <clears throat> um fortunately we didn't have to open for too many bands we were always able even a small were able to do kind of headlining tours but um, one thing that we're particularly proud of is that we played with a lot of bands that we've every just about every band we played with we loved and were fans with and we in a lot of cases if it was a louder band they were louder than us and then we played with a lot of bands that were a lot more talented than we were whether it be stereo lab or dirty three or so many <clears throat> those Two come top to the top of my head, Helium, um, Paul though. Um, and that's the list goes on and yeah. on. I mean, the Dead Sea, um, the 3Ds, um, Bailter Space, so many bands that were really, really good and interesting. And a lot of times, um, US Maple, Guided by Voices, um, you know, these bands yeah. were just kind of you know, they were incredibly good live bands and, you know, we're playing for an hour and a half or whatever, and they're playing for 50 minutes. And I really, um, it's, it's very nice to when pavement fans come up to me or, you know, contact me and say, Hey man, thanks. You know, like 
without you guys, I never would have heard of this, 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 and this. And I've become a huge fan of all of those bands. And, um, and see the same thing goes for me with a lot of bands that I saw, like I never would have been a saccharine trust fan if I hadn't seen Minutemen and meat puppets. Um, so I just think that's kind of part of the punk rock ethic. And I think that those sort of techniques of like screwing over the opener, um, as far as like clubs, like that sort of, you know, small club culture goes now. Um, I think it's, there's a wonderful artist here in town in Des Moines. Her name's um, Anna Libera. She's a girl from Nebraska called Anna Gebhardt. She's really talented, really good singer, and a classically trained pianist. And she has, <clears throat> most of her songs are pretty quiet. And she, back when music was happening a lot more around here, you know, a lot of people would just like talk where she couldn't even really concentrate. And I just think that's just people... You know, especially when you can go outside and talk. I just think it's BS. Like, um, I think, yeah. you know, one thing about being a Bell and Sebastian fan over, over the years, and I've seen them, you know, maybe six, eight, ten times. Um, if you're talking too loud during Bell and Sebastian, their fans are going to tell you to shut up. You know, um, I saw an Iron and Wine concert here a few years back at Hoyt Sherman, and I was actually had a pretty substantial sports parlay going Matt I was like at the fifth game and it was an NBA game and I was I was checking this NBA score because I think I stood to win like three or four hundred dollars on like a twenty dollar parlay and I got scolded by a fan for checking my phone too much so um who knows I mean um who knows how it all works but I think it's incredibly disrespectful if, if, if it's an artist yeah. who thrives on playing at a lower volume um to talk about you know the last six pieces of tattoo art that you got while you're watching them play um so i remember one time how, who knows oh, how that works <laughs> i remember one time seeing uh grant hart open for uh wilco this was like 1999 at first avenue and a couple guys next to me just were chatting while Grant was playing. And I remember he walked away from the mic, kept playing his guitar and singing, but like, just like stuck his head between the two people that were talking. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then went back to the mic. Um, so a little, a little Des Moines connection though, for you too, is, is, as we're pulling some of these threads together is one of my closest friends from high school. And uh, honestly, the person that got me into uh, REM because his aunt lived in Atlanta and she, told him that there's a band out of Athens that he should listen to. That's what got me into REM. Um, uh, David, he, he used to book concerts. Uh, he went to school at Brown university. So he was on the Brown concert committee. And oh, yeah. as a music nerd, he would also photocopy old writers that they had in their collection. Oh, right. Wow. And send, send them to That's me, cool. but he, he lives in, he lives in Des Moines uh, now. Uh, and really, yeah. Yeah. Huh. He, he works for the public, uh, for the public schools, uh, just great guy. He was a principal and now he basically helps coach teachers and does a lot what's of his, what's his, what's um, his surname? Uh, Johns. Okay. David yeah. Johns. I'll have to look out for him. I don't know him. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, of course, like, you know, we lost Vaudeville Muse, um, the yeah. venue here, you know, which is, I guess when things, you know, eventually will get going again, this will be a music culture again. And, um, 
at some point, who knows? I mean, I, I don't really know, but yeah, no, I look forward to, it's a very yeah. small scene. Everybody knows each other's right. names. Yeah. I would actually say Iowa city is a bigger scene. I mean, cause you have the, just the con- constant influx of, you know, people from Drake don't really get involved in what happens in Des Moines very often. They right. just stay at Drake. Whereas obviously Iowa city is more like the way Charlottesville was, or, you know, most, or Columbus or, you know, the big 10 towns that, yeah. you know, that's, there's just a constant flow of student life. Even if like, you know, um, you know, 7% of Hawkeye current Hawkeyes fit our definition of cool, um, whatever the hell that means. Um, that's a lot of people. Yeah. You know? Whereas Des Moines, I've often said, you know, like, if we won the lottery and we opened up like the ultimate music venue here, we'd have to depend on like the, basically the same a hundred people having to go to every single thing that we did. Right. You know? So, um, again, like a city this size, like, um, yeah, it's cool. But, it's cool here, you know? So especially if you can get out of, so you know, especially if you can get out of here 50 days in the winter. Yeah. And the downtown over the decades is really, I mean, in the nineties, there wasn't much to downtown. Like it was, but I feel like, you know, the area around the sculpture park and some more bars, some music happening. Yeah, no, there's stuff, you know, yeah. Like when we first But it's still a work here, in we, progress. Yeah, we didn't move here until 2007. It was still kind of dead. Um, yeah. You know, the problem is, is that um, sort of what overrides um, everything, at least in this town, is um, suburbanites going downtown to get really messed up and then vomiting in ubers and that whole like kind of meat market type that's sort of a big part of that court avenue district and these villages pretty cool you know and there's i mean there's things again everything got put on hold and you know those type of businesses really suffer i do know that in the last couple of years, sort of the bar culture has gotten a little bit more sophisticated. Um, the rest, I think, you know, and maybe it's the same thing in Iowa City. It's like the food establishments have been really put to the test. And if you've survived, then you must be doing something pretty cool. But um, yeah. there's some cool do- new developments. And here in Des Moines, there's a really cool um, bar called the Bartender's Handshake. And there's a really cool... Um, brand new, really cool little sandwich shop called La Shell's Fine Foods. And I, I have a feeling once that kind of like um, music culture kicks back into high gear that, um, that you know, I, I don't really know who the new kids are, but um, right now there's just not that many places to play unless you're a um, Slipknot cover band, um, <laughs> which is apparently a very financially advantageous thing to be here uh, um, here, here's I mean, a con you, you can make you can you can make people people pay 35 dollars to go see you play if you do a competent set of ario speedwagon covers for god's sakes i mean it's all right it's, if uh, our if our all rather disturbing you know to be honest if our arena anthem <laughs> doesn't take off we, we oh, can yeah. become the next ario cover band yeah, I mean, no, there's no way in a million years we'll be doing that. We're just going to stick with the uh, unknown, unheralded um, sports anthems until yeah. we hit the nail on the head. You, yeah, uh, I think if I have a xylophone, that's a good 
place to start. I bought a xylophone during the pandemic thinking that, because um, that's my favorite instrument, <laughs> and thinking that I might become proficient at, at the xylophone by the time pavement took the stage again. But um, if I took it up there now and played it um, in, in front of any amount of people, um, instead of it drawing awe, um, like I would hope it would draw, draw a lot of bewilderment and giggles. My my son, who's 12. Uh, he, oh, congratulations. He's pretty, I, I feel like he's pretty musically talented, but he, one of his, one of the instruments he plays is mallets. Um, so yeah, see, we can use him. He, yeah, he does. Um, <clears throat> he's starting to get into guitar. Now it's funny because it's nineties indie rock is, and it's not me giving him stuff to listen to, but he starts asking me about Nirvana, Pixies, uh Pixies, he, yeah he also plays piano what else does he play he used to play french horn kind of dropped that he has a ukulele but the funniest thing is the way he calibrates himself on an instrument to figure out where he's at is the riff from seven nation army because he knows what that is on piano yeah and so so then he figures out where he is on guitar or figures out where he is with another instrument his age group it would be the first <laughs> song that he heard on a constant basis so i mean you know you can't get away from it um we'll know, get him to tour with us he'll be like our tommy from the replacements like he I, I think by by the time we really kick it into high gear matt i think it'll probably be a pretty big deal it sounds like he's headed in the right direction i think that he probably won't want us anywhere near him yeah um, so now who knows you know um the first the first shows white stripes ever played outside of Detroit when they were teenagers um, was a handful of shows opening for pavement. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. They played their first show in Towson, Maryland opening for us. They, they, it was just the three of them. It was Jack and Meg and it was somebody who they said was their nephew. And it may very well have been, I don't really know, but he was like, he was 16. He did all the driving and Jack and Meg were like 18 and 19 and they were, really really nervous and um we played with them just about six shows in the south um the reason being is our tour manager deb pastor was a huge fan of their first record and she's like let's have botch our booking agent get in touch with these kids and see if they want to do it well they were they were marvelous and um they were really nervous um and i remember us playing in raleigh north carolina with them at kind of a place that was too big for pavement and at the time too big for them and the promoter during their sound check saying to me why the hell did you get this band to play they completely suck look at this a-hole on a guitar jack way he doesn't even know how to sing into his mic okay so i i put my arm around this half rock and roll half pro wrestling promoter guy and said you see that band right there buddy they're gonna soar right over the top of pavement and a lot of other bands you know <laughs> and um i mean so you could see it yeah you could just see the pure they just had a lot of style and um the i mean meg is cool in her own right but um yeah you could see how um you know, Jack was uh, definitely had the precocity. He's going to be a rock star um, in his own 
definition of one. Um, yeah, no, you can see it. Toy Plate, I saw them several years later after they'd become mega stars on play at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. And they used pavement's lighting designer, Kelly Quarter, who also does the San Francisco Ballet. And I went backstage to hang out with them. And at this point, they were, you know, extremely world-renowned. And um, they, it was funny because they acted like I was a bigger rock star than them because they, you know, they, they'd started, um, and I, they, I think they're, they both like pavement quite a bit. They'd sort of started, um, at least in terms of playing outside of Detroit opening for pavement. Um, so, you know, again, one of many bands that have opened for pavement that are at least 300 times more successful, um, Oasis being another who's, bigger than white stripes, I guess, in some ways. And, um, back and, um, who knows, you know, how it all works, but, um, yeah, I mean, we're all right. Well, tell, tell Jack that we might find a spot for him on our arena rock group. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, yeah, he, I don't, he, you know, he moved to Nashville and he's become really, he's become, you know, he's, uh, you know, I've, I haven't seen him much, he's in Nashville now. And like, yeah, I'm out of touch with the guy. Um, you know, I've hear he's obviously, I don't know really what's going on with him. Um, but, um, you know, I think he might be a little bit too big for us, Matt. Um, right but, now, right yeah, now he might be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Power of positive thinking. Bob. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 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 We'll keep it. We'll keep it. We, we both better learn how to play mate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, a uh, question I have for for most guests too, just from from all the creative things that you've done and and kind of your your path. I like talking to people just about advice for listeners and and when I talk to guests, sometimes it takes the form of you know like a wise elder <laughs> departs his wisdom, but we're usually too cocky to take it in. Right? It sounds absurd sometimes. Something they might say, and then as you get older, you realize. That was pretty wise and you know, pretty elegant package that they gave me. Others are stuff that they wish they would have heard sooner in their life. And so I, I'm stealing from Austin Cleon, Steal Like an Artist, where he said, when, we, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. But I didn't know from your perspective, uh, from a, a creative side, either or both of good advice you, you ever received or advice you wish you would have received. Um, <clears throat> musically... Um, the only advice I've really ever recall receiving, and I'm not sure if it was good advice at all. In fact, I'm not sure this dear friend of mine ever gave me particularly good advice at all, but I, I certainly loved him. Um, David Berman told me when I was about 18 or 19 to drum drunk. Um, I definitely followed through on that. Um, I don't think people have really ever given me too much advice along Gary Gary Young told me um, very misguided advice that every single time you hit a drum, you hit it as hard as you physically can. And I'm not the strong, it's going to be very much like spinal tap type advice. Um, <laughs> I'm not the strongest guy in the world, but I'm pretty strong. And um, I remember touring with Sonic Youth and Steve Shelley coming up to me and be like, dude, man, what the hell are you doing? Why do you hit your drum so hard? You know, you know, there's like bikes on them, you know? And, and he said, well, I said, that's what Gary told me years ago. You just, you know, you, you hit your drums as hard. So I'm like, 
I'm just like savagely hitting my arms are sore all the time. The most important thing, there's one thing I'm good at at music. I'm very good at changing skins and tuning drum heads because I've just annihilated so many of them. Um, the cool, one really cool thing about Steve is he he's the kind of guy that like would only use skins for one or two shows because he's such a meticulous drummer that he says then he would just kind of give me all of his, his extra skins, which was cool. Um, that was also really terrible advice. So the, the two pieces of musical advice that come to my head are, are both come from um, sources that are miscreants and um, are, is poor advice. Um, I would say, <clears throat> so I'm kind of over on advice. I, most of the advice that's been given to me that was very good and solid was given to me by my mother. Um, and unfortunately for both of us, I probably haven't followed enough of it. Um, my advice to people in general at this point is to do everything they can to cut down on and not complain. Um, it's really easy um, to complain about <clears throat> things big and small. I just think part of being a considerate person is to sort of stop yourself and sort of really kind of question what you're complaining about. Um, I hear people complaining on a constant basis about things that aren't complaint worthy. I think it's part of the internet age. Um, complaining about the quality of your Whopper. You just bought like a $3 sandwich at a store in which the people are getting paid like $11.50 an hour and you're going to complain about the preparation of your Whopper. Complaining about you live in like a <clears throat> upper middle class neighborhood and in the suburbs and you're going to complain about your water bill going up and actually spend 15 minutes of your life writing about how your water bill is going up. And I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just but it, the, so those are certain examples, but just like kind of everywhere I go, every, every uh, horse racing horse has so many, if they're not winning, they're complaining. Yeah. Um, I mean, people who bet, that's almost like an invitation to complain because if you don't win, you're, you're never look, if you bet and lose, it's your fault. You made the wrong choices. I don't care how unfortunate you were during the course of a game or a game that you watched your bet on, you know, you made that choice to make that bet for that amount. You can't blame Patrick Mahomes. I mean, you know, it's just like uh guy's brilliant. You know what yeah. I mean? So they lose the other night. It's not his fault. You know, guys, a brilliant quarterback tried to make a play. So I was just saying like people complain about like the quality of a 79 cent mango that's on sale. I just, I just think like, let's keep our complaints complaint worthy. I mean, there are things that um, are worthy of complaint, but I would say 99 percent of complaints that i hear about things big and small are just not complaint worthy especially when 
there are people who have to deal with so many difficult things. Um, you know, it's like, it's almost like living next to a city that's been completely ravaged by a hurricane and complaining about how you left your $40 Weber grill out in a rainstorm. I mean, right. you know, so it's just, I just think in general, if people take the time to like stop bitching about everything, they'll, they'll be sort of a happier person. Um, you know, um, that's all. Yeah, that's that's about it. But now advice is like for me, like I'm there's I've been given a lot of advice along the lines that I should have taken that I didn't take. And I think that I I have um I think that um one way to deal with really sort of rude people is to kind of kill them with kindness. My mother sort of taught me that at yeah. a young age. So I think that that's really effective technique in dealing with assholes um but uh yeah just in general it's just like you know you know this has been a tough time <clears throat> for a lot of people the pandemic i think of it you know we've talked a lot about during this zoom cast about sort of what we would call our glory years um as teenagers and through our 20s and stuff like that and i've got and you've got a 12 year old son so and that's an important year too when you're 11 um yeah. But, you know, I've got nephews that are 16, 21, and 25. I, it's, it's, it's amazing to think about what it would have been, been like to be, you know, 21 or 25 and have just absolutely everything shut down in every way, shape, or form during one of those years. So, yeah, I feel as far as a pandemic goes, to be like, you know, in a nice house in Des Moines with a deck and a, and a wife and a corgi and, like, you know, grocery store next door. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that, wasn't that bad. And then like, you know, I don't have much of a social life anyways, you know? And um, so, you know, things are pretty good here, bud, you know? Right on. Yeah. Bob, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It, it was an honor having you on the, on the show. And uh, hopefully maybe uh, as pandemic opens up, uh, I know you, you're getting a big grove in Des Moines. Uh, uh, that's something that's coming to town. I don't. So oh, what's happening? Big Grove. Uh, they're out of oh, Iowa okay, City. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. They so they they hopefully they'll be bringing a music venue because they do live music as well here. But some good craft beer. Maybe we can um, get some writing sessions in pretty soon on the anthem and yeah, watch the yeah, checks yeah. roll in. The great thing about this um, this day and age is like I can make stuff on my phone and send it to you, you, and then you can record it. Then we could just mix mix the. I've actually made. Um, I've been a part of like a handful of records in the last couple of years where like I just put headphones on and listen to the music and then like make noises into my voice memos on here and then send it back and then <laughs> the person on what do you call the thing on just the basic garage band thing. Yeah. I don't know how to use that. Um, again, like, you know, the podcast that I do with Mike, he's, he does all the engineering. I'm, I'm, my skills are minimal in that regard, but yeah, you'll, you'll, we'll make it happen. We'll make right it happen. On. Right but on. I really appreciate you having me on as a guest and it's a, you know, absolute pleasure uh, talking to you and hopefully I'll see you out there on the, on the, um, the road at some point and i certainly look forward to getting back up there to iowa city i don't if you yeah. know anything about mission creek um for next spring or what their plans are 
not not yet. Yeah, it was it was tough. Uh, Mission Creek is one of my favorite times of year, so not having having that was was tough. But uh, a couple of years now. Yeah, and then yep. now we're talking. Um, and then I understand that um, Iowa City's you know like vaudeville museum has lost some of its cooler venues right we lost the mill that was the probably mill, the yeah. hardest one for me to to I swallow went there. i saw a brilliant xyloris white show there um during during mission creek i'm happy yeah. I got to go there then i experienced their unusually large um mozzarella cheese and planks <laughs> the planks yes the planks yeah <laughs> somebody will bring the plank back yeah yeah, yeah actually they auctioned off <clears throat> a bunch of a uh, bunch of stuff so i have one of their they're outdoor tables and umbrella <laughs> and oh, chairs. Cool. So I call it yeah. the mini mill, to, uh, but I haven't had people over to the mini mill too because of COVID, right? But it was going to be that people could sit and It'll listen to music in the backyard at the... Uh, at- Are you familiar with the um, venue in Rock Island, Illinois called Roz Talks? Have you been out there? I haven't. I've heard good things, but I haven't been there. Oh, yeah. If you check their schedule on occasion, yeah. um, the guy that runs it's an awesome dude. I DJed there this summer. Okay. Um, they, that guy does really, really cool things, and he, he's hanging by a thread. His name is, <clears throat> excuse me, his name is Ben. Great guy, and a really great club, really cool place in Rock Island, which I guess for you would be about an hour and a half away, right? Yeah, actually, uh, about about an hour. It because I, I can get to Davenport in just about fifty minutes. Yeah, no, and I Airbnb found a little cottage yeah. there. We spent the night. We had a blast, but it's a fan, really, really cool club, and um, he gets really interesting stuff. So if you ever have any reason to go out there, I definitely recommend that place. It's really one of the coolest venues I've been to in America. And I've only ever DJed there, but I've, yeah. seen, some, I've seen some music there, and it's just really, really cool. The guy, I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool thing that happens over there. That's kind of a pretty cool area, but... Um, yeah, no, right pleasure on. talking to you, Matt. Yeah, take yeah. take care. Thanks so yeah, much. Keep Have in touch. Day. Yeah, keep we'll in touch. Do. Yeah, I'll just be around here. All, All right. right. Yeah, take care, bud. Bye. Thank you. Bye.